and it doesn't. It, <laughs> culturally, it does not bear out in 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 so many ways. In a lot of ways, the opposite, right? It, there's yeah. there's a lot of cultural behavior that demonstrates that there's the harmful byproducts of avoiding one's own mortality, and so that's kind of where I've um where I focus the podcast and and my exploration. Um, and my intellectual curiosity and emotional curiosity and, and turned into spiritual curiosity is like, like how does that tension, um, recognizing that the, the fear of one's death is, is natural and a evolutionary tool. <coughs> right. Um, but how does that affect how one lives? And if you, if you wrestle with it long enough and hard enough, um, can then you use that as your own personal evolutionary tool? Yeah, absolutely. For, for your own life. Welcome back, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You are loved and you are not alone. You are loved and you are not alone. You are loved and you are not alone. These are the words that Devin Moss said to Philip Hancock repeatedly for nearly 10 minutes until Philip was pronounced dead. Given Devin's role as a humanist chaplain, you might not be surprised that he would find himself attending to someone in their final moments or saying these words. But this was no ordinary death. Philip Hancock died by lethal injection in the state of Oklahoma having been convicted of murdering two people. My conversation with Devin in today's episode was so rich and expansive, from our shared passion for the big existential questions to his rich and complex podcast series, Memento Mori, that dives deep into mortality, to his unexpected journey to becoming a humanist chaplain who soon after being certified says yes to a request from an inmate on death row to have a non-theist chaplain accompany him in his final months here on earth. Devin is a humanist non-theist chaplain unwavering in his pursuit to relate stories that connect us to our humanity. He's a natural explorer using playful inquisition to examine the complexity of the human condition and the intrinsic meaning of life. Moss maintains an interdisciplinary practice of storytelling, street philosophy, and practical altruism. You are going to love him and our conversation in today's episode. Hello, Devin. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. It's fabulous to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Listeners, you just heard just a little bit about Devin at the top of the show, and I can't wait for us to dive in to what's brought you to this place of being a humanist chaplain, <laughs> right? The big existential questions, which hoping, is, as you heard, like, what brought you to this place? I was hoping right? you'd tell me. <laughs> well, we're going to explore it together, and we may or may not have answers, but I think one of the many things that seems that we share in common from our conversations has been just the um, our commitment and passion to deep curiosity and to the magic of questions and being mm -hmm. curious and a little bit um, less need for the answers and mm -hmm. uh, which is good because 
often they don't come to us uh, when we hope for them. So we'll explore that today a little bit. But I want to start our conversation grounding where we always do, speaking of curiosity, which is to begin to sort of understand or unpack the grief beliefs that so many of us have come to hold, some of which don't serve us particularly well in the losses that we face, particularly in our adult life. But is there an early memory of loss? I know you don't come to this work in the same way that some of us do from some big singular profound loss, but is there an early memory of loss in your childhood? And how do you, when you think back now, how were the adults modeling grief or not? What, what did that look like? Well, at first I'll start by saying, I really do appreciate the term grief beliefs. Yeah. Because like so many other things, we inherit things that that more often than not are involuntary. Um, so I will, I will start maybe in a way that that's not directly related to, to death. That's all, all losses count. That's the thing. We learn grief beliefs, particularly actually, I think when it's a non-death loss, but it's some other form of loss. So yeah, please. Yeah. And as far as like parents modeling, one thing that, that still strikes me as odd from my parents among many things is that, you know, when they divorced, when I was 11, there was no conversation about it. So there was no, certainly there was no mourning of family or family unit having just broken up. And there was not a relationship built to, to structure it. So it still felt like it was, is a cohesive family unit. And so the modeling there was avoidance. Yeah. Simply. And and that has carried through in so many ways. And, you know, it is in in some parts still a part of me. It's still a part of my relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, my mom is is now sort of infamous infamous for for always saying is like well you don't tell me anything and and part of that and I, you know i don't i try not to to lay it on too thick with my mom <laughs> that we don't need every session doesn't have to be a therapy session nor do i want her to feel like i'm blaming her for everything yeah yeah that i do but my but my answer is like well you've you were never taught to tell you anything yeah. we never said anything and i and i think it goes back talk about inheriting like her mother died when she was 17 mm. and she never talks about never Please. talks about her mother and 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 I to be fair I don't do much asking either because it just felt like space or territory or a topic that that is off limits yeah um and so I think th- that is an early modeling um, from my mother's side. And my parents are from the same small town in Idaho, Weezer, Idaho, to be exact. <laughs> you may have heard it from the famous Weezer Fiddle Festival, their claim to fame. And, the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an agriculture society. Yeah. And her father's German. And that's in their blood. It's in my blood. And, you know, my grandfather, my dad's father, 
His dad died when he was 40. His dad died when he was in high school as well. And he had to then become the, the breadwinner. He was high school student body president, but only went to high school half of the day because he had to go work on a ranch the second half of the day mm-hmm. because he was essentially the, the breadwinner. Yeah. And so I, all, I, I say all of that it, it, to cre- paint the broader picture that I come from a family that you ain't got time for grief. Yeah. We got to, we got to get to work and survive. Yeah. And produce. Um, And produce. And, and that was just the, that was just the era. And so, you know, as, as it becomes, as our physiological needs become different than it, than it was, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. That behavior though is still persists. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's still taught, be it intentional or not. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of... Yeah. Well, I appreciate you naming... First of all, I always appreciate when guests share a non-death loss, because as listeners know who've listened to the show, I'm really working to expand what it is we name and acknowledge as loss and grief-worthy, you know, air quotes there around that. So I appreciate that, but also the fact that I think what you described is what so many of us experience, um, which is why I bring up over and over again this term grief beliefs that I've created, because I think we only think of beliefs as ones that we have that are come to us when people told us. We learned it from the doctrine maybe of our religion or our spiritual family or background or the expressions that people say to us. But I think some of the most powerful and oftentimes harmful grief beliefs we carry are from the absence. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, from the spaces that weren't created to talk about things or to ha- talk about hard things or to show emotions or changing the subject or the absence of things. And so we don't even recognize that we hold beliefs. Right. Because it's not so obvious. It wasn't so my dad told me, you know, hit me and told me not to cry or something, you know, or told me something directly or there was some tangible behavior. And so. And as you alluded to about like not pressing your mom too much, first of all, your mom only learned what she learned from her family. Exactly. Right. You know, so I never blame our parents and we're going to hopefully do if, if we can each become responsible for becoming more aware of our own grief beliefs, right? Then we might have a chance to creating different spaces if we choose to have children and we'll still get it wrong and we'll still learn more things by the time they become adults and so on and so forth. But we 100% do not have a chance of changing that culture in our family systems if we don't become aware. And then be and then decide that was helpful. I really liked that piece. That was not so helpful. That is not serving me, right? Um but part of how I think we're doing so much damage to ourselves as we navigate grief in our own lives, but certainly to our friends, to our family members, when we set policies as bosses, as program creators, as organizational creators, if we're lawmakers, et cetera, is the, are those unexamined grief beliefs that find their way subtly into sort of reinstituting some of these really harmful ways of being. And um, so that's why I like to unearth those questions. And I particularly appreciate sort of the absentia um, ways in which you learned grief beliefs, because I think 
you know, I can guarantee almost everybody listening to this episode has experienced some of those, some version of that themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to, your journey to sort of being present in the world as somebody who is a, alongside death and dying and grief and kind of the spiritual past is different than many of the other guests that have come to my show. And I'm so interested for you to help frame us. I know we've talked and I've read and you said a little bit in your um, talk that you gave at Endwell um, Symposium at the end of last year was this thread that maybe carries you through even your career in video and film. I think you had a f- career was your sort of longstanding existential curiosity. Were you the like fifth I didn't know grader? you were going to say crisis or curiosity? No, curiosity. Yes. Yes. No, not crisis. Well, I mean, <laughs> you can say if you it was a crisis, but um, existential curiosity. And how, where do you, where can you think of like, where did that stem from? Or when can you first remember that that was something that, really called to you and I there's not a time where I don't remember it. I, I okay. the, yeah the the joke which was entered into the the article last Sunday was that that I was instead of coming out of the womb saying why I came out saying why <laughs> yeah so I I yeah it's certainly not a crisis I, but but I I think I've always questioned reality and in meaning and not in a way that is nihilistic or I don't feel the angst in it, but I'm, as you alluded to at the top of the show is like, there's just a, an inherent curiosity that has always driven me and, you know, sort of the, the reality in which we live has always seemed a bit peculiar to me of like, why, why this? You know, even yeah. as like as a kid looking at a house, I'm like why? Why is it a pitched roof? Like, who did? Is that the really the best way? Why do all the houses look the same? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's just kind of always the, the way it's been. So, yeah. So I've I've been fortunate enough to to have been able just to scratch those itches and and follow those those breadcrumbs, whatever they may be. Did you just? I mean, maybe a little tangential, but just out of curiosity, because again, this comes to how we are shaped either to sort of follow our purpose or not, or to, to develop our beliefs. Do, do you, when you look back, do you think that kind of level of curiosity was dismissed, you know, maybe as a child or a young adult by others, like we don't have time for that, or was it encouraged? Or when you look back and think about that sort of longstanding curiosity, It was tolerated. Okay. It wasn't outright dismissed. Okay. I want to be careful how much yeah. I'm, this is going to be blaming payment parents hour. Um, yeah. But, but not encouraged. Yeah. Not yeah. encouraged. Well, again, I mean, I would have been surprised. I mean, I think very few people would answer that question being in, saying being encouraged from what you told us already about your family, about being really practical and working hard and productivity really at the survival level, but also just, sort of the nature of your family and that community, but also writ large in our broader culture. We don't particularly encourage, you know, curiosity. We encourage expertise and knowing, I think to me, to the detriment of so much, you know, our lack of curiosity. So just was, you know, wondering because 
when you think about that trajectory of that sort of existential curiosity that you had leading into what became sort of your first more, in my mind anyways, sort of public platform for that curiosity was your pod, is your podcast, mm -hmm. you know, that could have gone a different way if there was a lot of sort of pushback against that curiosity. So you listeners, you heard at the top of the show, if you hadn't already been a fan, you're going to listen and binge and love. A couple of years ago, no, tell me when you created the podcast, The Adventures of Memento Mori. Tell us a little bit. 2015. 2015. Okay. Oh my gosh. Almost a decade ago. <laughs> Sorry to no, no, that no. in terms. <laughs> You're yeah. like, dang, a decade uh -oh. ago. Um, tell us a little bit about Memento Mori for those of us who don't know it and, and why that show. What was that an exploration of? And So, so the... It's, it's a Latin phrase, memento mori, that translates to remember that you will die or remember yeah. that you must die. The, the origins origins is the, um, it was a phrase that the, the Roman generals in, in particular would use coming back from a, from a huge battle to essentially keep them humble. I think in the era of, overthrowing and people turning themselves into to godlike figures as the caesars would often do it was a way to check your ego gotcha um yeah. and so that's that's the origin and then over time it it changed other people adopted it in other ways particularly during the era of uh the black plague where so many people were in europe were dying and that's when the the more tangible versions of the Venita paintings and yeah. um, having a skull on your desk and and those things were the actual physical reminder of of one's mortality. Yeah, and it it just it it kind of came to me as a, again as a way to to explore the meaning of life, existentialism. What better way to to do that through the lens of our finitude, our impermanence? Yeah. And you know, it was a it was I started the podcast as a bit of a lark. It wasn't I didn't think it out. Yeah. There was no grand plan necessarily or or message. It was it was a topic that I found fascinating. I didn't think let me rephrase that. I thought there was going to be a limited number of episodes because like how many episodes could talking about death produce like <laughs> 10 maybe. Right. Yeah. Silly. Um, <laughs> so I just, you know, and I was, I was fascinated and, and, and I also think fascinated by it in a way that seems obvious to me and is obvious, but I don't think it's a way we necessarily as a culture think of it. And what I've, what I've learned throughout my exploration is that there's um, three ways in which we generally view death and it's all a game of proximity, right? And yeah, it's, of course, there's of course. the out there and that's the land of News, news headlines, yeah. statistics, things that we can regulate how close we need to get to at certain points through in our lives and our day. And that's going to vary for people, but there's always like, you know, I know that heart disease is in America is number one or something. So it's, it's information that we can attach. We have some agency to. there in a way, some yes. agency to our closeness mm -hmm. or to not to, to taking yeah. that in. Yeah. 
So that's that's the out there, and then um, then we take a to step in in proximity, and and what it's the somewhere close, yeah. and this is the land's most um understandable in regards to grief, right? It's the death of another that is in arm's length. Yeah. Um, and that's where we, a lot of um, perspectives on, on death are indexed on the somewhere close and rightfully so. Yeah. And then there's the, and then of course you take another step in, in proximity and then it's you, it's, it's the I, it's the me. And although it may be the most obvious in my experience, having done the podcast for nearly a decade, it is the area that is least explored or at least where behavior proves out that it is explored. So we all can say, yes, I know I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but does your behavior actually does that translate to you behaving? Yeah. How do I want to live? How yeah. do I want to live? Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't. It, <laughs> culturally, it does not bear out in, 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 in so many ways. In a lot of ways, the opposite, right? There's, yeah. there's a lot of cultural behavior that demonstrates that there's the harmful byproducts of avoiding one's own mortality. And so that's kind of where I've... um where I focused the podcast and, and my exploration um, and my intellectual curiosity and emotional curiosity and, and turned into spiritual curiosity is like, like how does that tension um, recognizing that the, the fear of one's death is, is natural and a evolutionary tool. (coughs) Right. Um, But how does that affect how one lives? And if you if you wrestle with it long enough and hard enough, um, can then you use that as your own personal evolutionary tool? Yeah, absolutely for, for your own life. And so that's how it kind of happened. And so fast forward nine years, here I am still doing it. Yeah. How? So you're really talking about examining sort of at the cultural level down, but inviting maybe listeners to think about this at the individual level. How do we hold close without, as you said, being a nihilist or a defeatist or right, the notion that we will die. And then how do we want that to translate into then how do I want to live knowing I will die. Everybody I will love will die. Right. And we may not be remembered. (coughs) Excuse me you know, a generation from now, how do I want to live? What did you learn as you explored that different topics, different guests? What were you seeing was the pushback or the resistance to that? Or how were people engaging in it in ways that were really beautiful? When we come back, Devin shares what he's learned from exploring these big existential questions and the cultural ramifications on our ability to reckon with the fact that we are all mortal. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, and I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Everything sucks and other negative thoughts. This is your brain on grief. Oh, the places you go and the people you see and why it's exhausting. People say stupid shit. 
Watch out for the grief thief. Secondary losses, the sneakiest bitches of them all. The beautiful, messy, emerging you. Those are just a handful of the chapter titles for my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss, hitting bookstores in June. But you don't have to wait until then to hear more. You can pre-order your copy of the book today at Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, or BarnesandNoble.com. As a special thank you for pre-ordering, I'm hosting a pre-launch party for everyone who does. It's happening on Zoom on May 22nd, which happens to be my birthday. I'll read some excerpts, answer your questions, dish about the behind the scenes of the podcast, and more. You can follow me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW, then DM me that you pre-ordered the book, and I'll share the party invite link with you. If you're not into that whole social media thing, don't worry about it. You can just drop me a note to info at lisakefauver.com. Hey, and I'm also starting to schedule book tour appearances across the country, starting with my book launch on June 4th at Warwick's Bookstore here in San Diego. If you're in the area, I'd love to meet you. But don't worry, if you don't live near here, I plan to hit the road and I'll have dates for you soon. I'm going to be showing up in places like LA, Seattle, Portland, New York, Boston, DC, Chicago, and of course my hometown, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go Blue! If you want to keep up to date on where I'll be showing up, don't forget to sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter at lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. I can't wait to meet you, both at the pre-launch party and in your city while on tour, to thank you so much for supporting the show and the book, and really just to take some time to celebrate life together. By the way, if you didn't hear your city named and you want me to come to you, drop me a note and let me know what destinations I should add to my tour. And if you have connections to a bookstore or other fun venue in your area, let me know that too. I want to share a formula with you that I think you might find interesting. 100% of us experience grief, plus we spend the majority of our waking hours in the workplace equals grief is in your workplace right now. It's true. Remember, it's not just death loss. We experience grief in the wake of relationships ending, diagnoses, layoffs, high turnovers, restructuring, relocations, and even frightening and traumatic world events. Having been both an employee and a leader in deep grief over the years, five years ago I set out to create impactful programming that helps organizations create a grief-smart and more compassionate culture. I've been fortunate over the years to deliver keynote addresses for mental health conferences, partnered with school districts to offer half-day intensives for educators, and offered ongoing workshop series on grief, loss, burnout, resiliency for a wide range of clients from Fortune 500 companies to medical residency programs, hospice organizations, and other social service entities. Conference planners have invited me to lead Ask the Expert panels, and leaders have also trusted me to offer consultation on specific situations facing their company. The surprising thing that they all had in common, it's that these opportunities all came from listeners like you. So if you're part of an organization or company that is impacted by grief, which, as we learned in the formula in the beginning, that means all of us reach out to me at lisakefauver.com and we can work together to make your organizational culture grief smart.
I, I will, I'll start answer by saying what I learned was death is not a taboo topic. I know we, there's in some ways and that could be people's experience. And that was my hypothesis going into to talking about this. But what I, what I learned though, is that space and language isn't right. Isn't understood. Yeah. So it's, People want to talk about it. They just don't know how or when it's appropriate. So, so again, it wasn't modeled to them. So they modeled. never, they never had that experience, which is why I think the work each of us and so many of our colleagues are doing is so important. Is like the crave. So what you're saying is the craving is there, the interest is there, the curiosity is there. There's just the how. How do I? How yeah. do I execute this? And what does yeah, that yeah. look like? And, Particularly and, around our own death. By the yeah. way, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I always thought that I didn't want to be known, nor, nor do I still want to be known as, as the death guy. And so when you would go out and be social, it's not what you wanted to talk about. Although Believe I me, I, I get a lot of, of curious looks in my, yeah. in my out days. Yeah. But, but what I found was that all I, I just was the, I was the green light. Right, I would show up, and people would come to me and be like, "Hey, so this is going on, and what do you think about this?" And um, and I'm and I'm happy to be that person to get other people to to talk about their own mortality or or death in however um, it's affecting them or they're thinking about it at 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 the time. Yeah. Well, to me, and again, I think this is because I've been in this space professionally and personally, and but maybe people are feeling this way too. When I think about invitations or spaces that invite me to talk about grief or death, it's not actually talking about death or grief. The, the appeal is really, this is a space to talk about meaning. Meaning making, meaning that meanings, meaningful experiences, the meaning I want to make in my life, the meaning other people made in my life. And that we are so devoid of culturally. Mm -hmm. Like, where is the space for that? The space isn't for that. In fact, everything, when we look at sort of the way our political systems, the way our economy works, it's clear that we are not facing, by the way, that we're all going to die. We all live as if we have no impact on the world and that we're just going to be here forever then thus climate crisis and all of the ways in which we build so many of the systems and institutions but all of that is devoid of um meaning and that's what we are essentially as human beings right we are storytelling creatures we are meaning making um so i can i can imagine that that is one thing that draws people to you and to those and, conversations. And, yeah. and what I, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think we can talk about that as it pertains to spirituality and, yes. and yeah. rituals and, and those things. But, but I will also add to what I've learned is that I think people avoid it because it's not easy. And I think even yeah. talking about it um, as much as I do, it, it it doesn't make it easier, but what it does, it it makes you deeper, right? In the sense of having an understanding. And so I, I, I think it, and I don't know if this is new generationally, 
but like the good stuff is the stuff that you have to wrestle with. Yeah. Like if it comes easy, you should be squinting your eyes and being like, a little wait suspect. a second. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, I, I, yeah, I think the, the avoidance too around death is that the, the fear that it's going to be hard. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not hard, but I'm, but what I'm saying is that it feels like somewhere we've, we've lost the resilience or capacity to, yeah, or at least, with hard things. But, yeah. but, but, but that's a, a thought, right? I, I don't think we really have. Yeah. I just think that there's a, it's a muscle I think we haven't yeah. practiced in a way. I think modernity and all the ways in which we've sort of evolved in a species with lots of good benefits, by the way. I'm not a Debbie Downer on, on things modernity. I do think we've lost a connection with that inner capacity that we have towards right. being with hard things, to rap- grappling with uncertainty. Um, and and it's discouraged out of us because we have a very winning culture like we have you know like winning is surviving is living and we talk about dying as you know in some ways i think culturally there's a lot of spaces when we call talk about dying as you know the opposite of winning of losing i mean I, listeners know i've been going through cancer treatment for this last year and the language around fighting cancer and winning cancer and beating cancer i mean if that's your jam and you're experiencing cancer go for it but it just really, I mean, I get my hackles up when I think about it. Like, I don't like that survivor language. Like, I'm a person navigating cancer, which is one of the many things that all of us have to navigate, these hard things that we have to navigate. And am I gaining some resilience and some lessons and have, deepening my curiosity? Yes. And Mm-hmm. Um, I think that language of winning and beating is also what pushes back our conversations about having real conversations about our own death. Or as I've talked about with so many hospice folks, and I know you've had this experience as a chaplain, or you might have had this experience, family members don't want to talk with their loved one who everybody else knows is coming to the end of their life because we all secretly have this sort of winning, beating, achieving kind of you know, I don't know, ethos or something at the at the core. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, boy, there, there's also other layers. Like I just think America in particular, yeah. we're just unrooted. We don't, a lot of people don't witness a, like elderhood in yeah. their homes, like multi-generational families otherwhere in the world do. And we don't have rooted culture. We have like recipes, right? Like we think of like my heritage, this and nothing. I mean, that's yeah. food is, yeah. <laughs> is a main line to your, your heritage. But yeah. I think that in addition to that, America, no matter where your ancestors come from, we've lost connection with um, the rituals around death and dying and yeah. particularly inside the home, yeah. which, um, which adds to that. You also about this idea of like winning and, and fighting. My dad is very Christian and he sent me a book the other day about, they were talking in his Bible study, they were talking about death and he really liked this book. He was like, you need to, it's gonna, it's gonna enlighten you about how Christians (laughs) think about death and dying. And I'm like, all right, 
Give it to me. <laughs> give it to me. You're not going to like what I'm going to say. I promise you, but give it to me. And the title was Death, My Last Enemy. And I was like, man, you couldn't pick a worse title. No. You know, like, it's not your enemy. No. It's our birthright. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, Jenkins, Stephen Jenkinson calls it, um, how does he phrase it? My friend, my enemy, or, or something like yeah. that, that, that it sort of, it, it makes it more of a relationship um, that isn't always pleasant. And he uses terms like wrestle instead of fight yeah. and things like we, we yeah. are navigate. It's like we are in motion with it. It's, it's, it's not adversarial. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful way to, I mean, I think, a, I think thinking about ourselves in relationship with all of these quote unquote hard things is the best way to think about it because um, part of how we experience it is how we show up for it, what we are open to, what we are being curious about, and then it changes it. I always, you know, say that we're in a relationship with grief. That's how I think about grieving is we're in a relationship with grief. So how do we show up for it can impact the way that we experience it. You know, you you spoke about just that kind of difference of approach to thinking about death with your dad, who, as you said, is deeply rooted um, in, in the Christian faith, which brings me to this sort of curiosity. So here you are having this Adventures with Memento Mori podcast. You are sort of living out some of your existential curiosity around death and dying. And before you know it, there you are in a program to become a humanist chaplain. Can you catch our listeners up for, first of all, what does that mean? Are you surprised that that's where you ended up in this day? And and tell us just a little bit about that journey from, you know, this podcast that was the space to create this, you know, explore this curiosity and then ending yeah, up with this I, <laughs> title. So I'll, I'll do a, uh, um, hopefully a very brief uh, history of it. So I was raised uh, Assemblies of God evangelical Christian. I even went to a private church school until the fourth grade. If you watch the the old documentary, Jesus Camp, that is exactly my, okay. my childhood. Um, didn't, didn't really entirely land, um, but I still felt something, right? I still had the, um, the itch of spirit. And then I was Catholic for a hot minute and then Southern Baptist for a hot minute. Neither of those two scratched that spiritual itch and then um just then kind of gave up and then i just said agnostic just because yeah, yeah. it was like this, yeah. this is this, this i don't is, belong this, to a particular organized religion but yeah the international yeah. symbol for agnostic <laughs> <laughs> um but i would never say atheist Interesting. oh that was you couldn't. That was that was blasphemy to borrow like, a yeah, religious worse, term there. Right? Worse yeah. than Satanist. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I just kind of, as for my adult life, just then kind of left it alone. I was I, but I still meditated, and I still found Eastern philosophies, some Vedic, um, some other types of Hindu, mostly Buddhists. I really was 
uh, attracted to and uh, to Zen Buddhism. Zen yeah. resonated the most. Maybe it was just because it was the most out there to, or the most available yeah. to me. And so I, I had these practices, but even then some of the stuff with Buddhism still didn't quite fit right with me. And, and, but I just left it at that. I didn't feel like I needed to. And then I started the podcast and I kind of had an inclination that whatever came out of doing that show would make me more spiritual, yeah. whatever that meant. But still kind of left it at that. And, and I would say the more, in the first couple of years, the more episodes that I did, the more firm I became in my perspective on um, skepticism, maybe not, but rational thought. Okay. Um, I could see where mythology... I could see where it was important. Um, you know, one of the, with the Buddhist filters that I would use is, uh, why would humans need this? Right. So as we talk about the soul, it's like, why would a human need the soul? And if, if there's an answer to it, then I would be like, well, that sounds graspingly human is another term I like to say. It's like, it sounds like a human, humans need that to be true. Yeah. Um, and so if it sounds like, yeah, that's solving a, a problem somewhere. Um, ex excuse, I just want to say excuse the horns in the background. I'm, oh, I'm that's across, all right. across from a school and it's, it's time to pick up their children. So I'm it's in New York. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so it wasn't until I was interviewing a, a Zen Buddhist about Buddhist beliefs in the afterlife. And after the conversation, she's just said, you would make a good chaplain. And I, I guess I, I realized that she was a chaplain, I, but it wasn't, I wasn't interviewing her because she was a chaplain gotcha. by yeah, any yeah, sense. Yeah. And I, and I kind of laughed it off um, because I didn't believe in a God. And, you know, I understood chaplain to, to mean, it's a very Christian word, chaplain to mean, you know, clergy in secular institutions. And, and I, I was not a believer. And, you know, she said, sit with that. Um, and then the breadcrumbs just started to, to, to show up sure enough. And then I was, and then the next interview I did was, uh, with an, uh, a mom at NYU at his office. He was a chaplain. Again, I wasn't talking to him because he was a chaplain. Yeah. yeah. A and next to his office was the humanist chaplain's office. And I was like, what in the heck is a humanist chaplain? <laughs> yeah. And he was like, it's a, it's. <laughs> it's a it's a non-theist chaplain. I won't go into that. You would not believe the impatience that's happening picking children up. <laughs> Talk about humanity. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um so yeah, so that <laughs> so this is um and and then I just started following the curiosity. One thing led to another and I ended up speaking with Greg Epstein, who's the humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT. And then he pointed me to a seminary school that was just started a humanist track. Yeah. And so I applied to that. I got in and then, yeah, I did, did one semester of seminary school and then 
COVID-19 happened. And then I went to grad school during the pandemic and did my internship um, during the, at Bellevue Hospital during the pandemic. Yeah. There's so much about, um, I appreciate about your journey in the human, you know, in the humanist chaplain, that just the fact that there is this, you know, program and that there is such a thing as a humanist chaplainship. Um, because I think, as we were saying before, the craving that we have for meaning, which is why people like this space, is so there's just this void. Again, I think for so many of us who didn't aren't rooted, you know, what say what you will about various organized religions that have their, you know, problems and their benefits to people, it, it, can, it can be a place for people find meaning or find connection or find grounding. And so you find this journey into humanist chaplainship, which really opens up the door for people who don't identify themselves in these particular, you know, organized religions to have somebody to come to them in their hour of need to be having these meaningful conversations to feel seen and held, because that's really what we all want at the end of the day, right? That's, that's to be seen and held. Tell me a little bit about the journey from that to being alongside Philip Hancock as he moved towards the end of his life on death row. And when that opportunity first came up to come alongside him um, in this experience, was your reaction, heck yes, or I don't know, or am I prepared or? Yes, 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 all the things. Okay. When we come back, Devin shares the incredible story of being invited to walk alongside Philip Hancock, an inmate on death row, in the period leading up to his execution date. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm always up to something new. Like in March, I'm hosting an online workshop exploring the shoulds of grief and then flying to Cincinnati to deliver the keynote address and facilitate a workshop on the forum on aging. In April, I'm back online with folks like you, and this time we're going to learn about the healing power of beauty, wonder, and awe. You can find the links to register in the show notes for today's episode or by visiting elisakefauver.com. But truly, I'm a lifelong learner, and I'd love to share my discoveries with you. Whether it's something I learn interviewing new guests, lessons from attendees when I'm delivering a talk, reflections on entering a new stage of my own cancer treatment, to be honest, or even learning something new about grief or loss, healing, resiliency by reading or taking a workshop of my own. The best way for me to share and to learn more about what you want to learn about is to sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter at lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. Why is it called that? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule, and neither is my newsletter. I recently received this moving review on Apple Podcast, and it touched my heart so deeply that I wanted to share it with you. Allie Moncrief said, I began by cherry-picking from these amazing podcast episodes, ones that seemed to fit with what I needed as I navigated traveling to see my gravely ill brother on the heels of losing our dad and our family home. Then I just ended up listening to whichever one came next because they're all so good. There are so many profound pearls of reality and wisdom in these conversations, 
and I am so grateful to have found Lisa's podcast. As I travel this path, I honestly have a ton of fear, and I'm in awe of the energy that has allowed me to be just where I am with my brother. Lisa's particular grace and communication around grief have really helped support me in this wickedly challenging moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Allie, for sharing. Friends, five-star ratings and beautifully written reviews like these not only help the algorithm get the show out to more grievers who might need it most, it also inspires me to keep bringing you more and more important conversations. I'm five seasons into the show, and I love every bit of the process. The hundreds of thousands of downloads tell me that, yes, people are listening, but it doesn't really tell me what it means to listeners like you. So I humbly ask you, if you love the show, if one or more episodes have helped you in some way, please take the time to head to Apple Podcast or Spotify, subscribe to the show, click the five stars to leave a rating, and then click the pencil icon to write a review. Those few minutes it will take you to do that will mean the world to me, truly. So, so I had just kind of finished Bellevue. I had graduated from grad school. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. And it was a case of leap and the net will appear. Yeah. And then. Which feels like something you've done over and over again in your life. This may be like the this biggest. One, this is the this scariest. This a big one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will say that. Um, there was a there was a free fall. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that net that it comes soon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm falling. So yeah. I did I did it it's yeah. it stopped making some sense. Or I I it maybe just goes back to American culture that we're taught that you just gotta close your eyes and wink and it'll manifest, right? You just mm-hmm. gotta take the step into it and it'll appear. Yeah. It wasn't appearing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was questioning everything. But then uh, there was an email from the American Humanists Association sent out being like, there is a man on death row who wants a non-theist chaplain. I, I was endorsed a, a chaplain, so I met the requirements. Does anybody want to do it? And then I said, yes. Like I said, heck yes. Um, If... Being a chaplain at Bellevue Hospital wasn't challenging enough. Let me let me try something. <laughs> let me go hang out on even, death row. Even yeah. more scary. Yeah. Um. And so, and so it just it it, it kind of happened, and I, I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't know what to do, and at the time, I I didn't really even have a clear understanding what spiritual care meant. Or spirituality, right? I, I mean, I, I kind of did, and and it's important to to at least for my spiritual journey to to talk about Bellevue because Bellevue, I mean, talk about an opportunity f- for learning. It, the patients weren't there for me to learn from them, but I learned a lot in that experience. Of course, and my supervisor was a rabbi, Rabbi Molly. 
understood my insecurity, my spiritual insecurity. So in my cohort at Bellevue, there was a Carmelite monk, there was a Muslim, there was a Baptist, a Nazarene, a Catholic, and a humanist, right? A a non-theist, which left a lot of head scratching for some people. And I felt it, right? And maybe I maybe I projected it on them. I don't want to yeah. sort of put thoughts in, in, into their heads, but it, I I felt like the the odd person out, particularly when I would go into a, a room, right? And and everybody else with their faith history had a confidence of knowing, like this is this is how I pray. This is what a prayer sounds like. This is yeah. right. There's that um, history and that structure and that infrastructure that they could and, rely on. And and even the costume, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so I, I, I felt that that was a detriment, but what, what ultimately happened is that was my advantage, was because I then had to go into every single patient room and be 100% open. It and meet makes, them where they're at. It makes it all about them. Yeah. Yeah. If I walk in nervous in a good way to be like, I need to find out what this person believes in because because what I believe in doesn't matter. So it was, it was, a, it was a great way to, again, credit to, to Rabbi Molly for, for helping me sort of work through my own insecurities to, to understand that, oh yeah, that I don't have suitcases of history of of theology um, that I'm walking in the room with. And that is what spiritual care is, right? Um, And so even like when I first started, I was nervous about praying with somebody because I I thought that that would be fraudulent Mm -hmm. until I understood in in those moments um, what a what a prayer could do for their spirit. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's not to assist in, assist the doctor in helping their body. Right. It's, it's understanding how they contextualize their pain. It's understanding how they see the world through religion or mythology or symbolism. It's understanding what's sacred. Even if you're a non-believer, you hold things that are very sacred to you. And, and as a human being, again, part of our uh, evolutionary toolkit is our stories yeah. and our mythologies. And whether you have faith that, that your theology is absolutely true, that's your experience. But there's still importance of like understanding that the symbolism of what you believe in is is important. And so what we what spiritual care is is like working in uh, what people think is sacred. And so again, it's helpful for me to to think of of spirit in in that terms, right? So we have like the, the body is is the pneumatic part of what needs to be healed. Um, therapy is is the psyche, but there still is a third part in my perspective, whether it's consciousness, I still reference it as spirit. I don't believe it transcends or, or I don't think it's important that it transcends. Yeah. Um, 
but it's still, and I still like place it here. It is, it is what connects us to something greater than ourselves. It's what connects us to each other. And it's what connects us to our innermost self. And it's, and it's separate and there's confluence, right? It's, it's confluence to the body. I, I believe in embodiment. So I think it's all one thing, but it's different than Psyche. And the way into it, in a way, is yeah. kind of what you're talking about. Like, we are together, the body, the mind, the soul, spirit, however you think about it, are all one. But how, you know, I think it's Parker, I can't remember who said, like, truth told slants. It's like, how we find our way into spirit is going to be, and how spirit sort of opens us up to the world is going to be a different sort of approach than a maybe you know, psychotherapeutic to get into your ego or to your consciousness or the way the doctor is going to work on healing your body. Right. The mm-hmm. approach has to be, I think, soft and accompanying and curious and caring, you know, which is why I think when you think about holding too close to your heart, when you say the word spirit, I think that makes sense that that's, that requires a kind of different approach. Yeah. I, I said this in the end while talk and I, and I came up with it for that, but I, but I've used it since is that, that spiritual care is, is the art of story listening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's listening for ways to, to enter in someone else's story. Yeah. And listening to believe, which is a very different way than we listen in our culture, right? We listen to fix, we listen to respond, we listen to become expert, but I think listening in this way that you are, I think pal- a lot of palliative practitioners have this. A lot of hospice practitioners have this. I like to think that's the work that I did and do, you know, is listening to believe, listening to connect, listening to uplift. That's a different kind of listening than many of us are trained in. Yeah. But that sounds like the path that you kind of found in, in your work as a humanist chaplain and in your practice. Yeah. And so all of that was ho- hopefully a context to... to to how my relationship with Phil evolved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of had that working knowledge and I knew Phil had a background of, of being religious, but it was, and it was in our first phone call. He said, and he ended, so we have 20 minutes per call, right? It's an automated um, prison network. And so, so this relationship started out via phone because he's in Oklahoma phone. on death row. You're in New York, yeah. although I know you ended up going there in person. But so, okay. So you had these 20 minute phone calls. That's a hard amount of time to kind of drop into something. Yeah. You know, yes. especially <laughs> a with deep Philip, conversation, especially yeah. with Philip Hancock, who liked okay. to, to talk. Um, and at minute 19, you'd get the autom- automated voice saying, you have one minute remaining. <laughs> and so it's, then it's like, what do we need to get out in 60 seconds? Right. And then it just cuts you off okay. at the 20 minute mark. And so it was our first, it was our first phone call. And I was trying to, to understand what spirituality meant to him so we could get on similar pages, right? Trying to get into his boat as we chaplains like to say. Um, and he, he said, um, Hate is my God, anger is my religion. And then it drops. And then the phone call ends. And I, I'm sitting there of two minds. First mind is being like, that was amazingly dramatic. 
<laughs> you know, from right. like a story. Like, from a video. Yeah, exactly. You're like, that's a like, drama. Did we rehearse that? Wow. Um, and then, then of course, the, the more real part was like, what Whoa. am I doing? Yeah. How does um, one uh, offer spiritual care to someone who says, hate is my God, right? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, but that he eventually said that he was joking, but it, it but he wasn't really. And, and, yeah. and so that was a clue that he still had, he still contextualized religion yeah. as evil. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't, I'm atheist. I don't call myself an atheist chaplain. I'm a humanist chaplain. Phil was atheist, technically probably anti-theist, but he he identified as a a um rational nihilist. Oh. And so and so I think what's interesting there once we understand that is that so as a humanist, I really do believe that the people have the potential to be and do good beyond themselves. Phil did not believe that human had that humans had that capacity. So we didn't. So to to wrestle with this, this religious question, we didn't need to talk about God so much. I mean, we did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we had two profoundly different things, perspectives to work to work through, or at least to 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 understand each other. Is he had, and I get it right. He had no reason to believe in humanity from from the story of his life um and then he's then the the more other people tried to push god on him the more he wanted to push it away and he was yeah. a he was a smart dude um memorized the bible made it a game to out christian the christians yeah um, and so, so part of our journey together, I mean, people ask, well, why does, why does, why do uh, an atheist need a chaplain is because Phil still contextualized his suffering through religion just in a different way. Um, and he was also a human facing what many of us don't face, which is a certain day on the calendar that was his death. Not many of us know yeah. that. And whether you have a religious belief or not, it's hard to imagine that you walk in this world not knowing that you have a date on the calendar that other humans are going to be killing you and not be needing to seek some feeling seen, being accompanied, some yeah. curiosity, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and so for, for you know, it, it was a, it was a, a struggle, that journey. Yeah. I, and I, you know, up until the almost the end of it, like I, I still would be like, I don't know how I'm helping him. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what spiritual care I'm, I'm providing. And then there was like, even. He I, said, show me something. What did he say? Show me something that's true. Show me something real. Show, show me, something me something true. true. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of Which, his invitation to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause there was also a, like a certain point 
where it was my it was my first in person visit. So this so our phone call started in February. The first in person visit was in July. Um, in Oklahoma, the spiritual advisors don't get privileged visits, so it's an open visitation. So this I so I have to share time. There's like a, a volunteer. Um, that would come every Friday as well. So we all three of us are talking, but we're like in a, in a big open s- space, big with, open space yeah. with there's other inmates that are talking to their families and stuff. And it was very, you know, it's very loud. So it's, it's, it's a bit hard to get to, to know somebody, particularly in trying to get them to get into a vulnerable space to talk about spirituality and, and matters of the heart and mind and, and, and all of that. So I remember, and this is four hours, right? So I remember after the four hour visit, um, I'm carpooling with a few people and I'm thinking to myself of like, wow, I wonder what, how, what they thought of my spiritual care. Cause I, I mean, I was like, I don't yeah. like it's, it's, what am I was, doing here? What yeah. am I doing? Okay. Um, and, and I would think about that a lot and until somebody else said it. And then I, I really realized it is that. They just, they being the attorneys and the other abolitionists and advocates, they just need somebody in the execution chamber, Mm. right? So a lot, so on a practical level. Gotcha. That was the purpose that you were serving. That was the purpose is, um, you know, for some of them, I just, all I needed to do was show up on November 30th and, and go into the room just because there's so many botched executions and to be... Um, eyes and ears within the execution chamber because by, you know, constitutionally um, it is their right to have someone in the room and a spiritual care advisor outside of corrections officer and somebody not the, yeah, not the staff. Yeah. Is the only one that's allowed in in the room. And so in part that took a, a bit of weight off because I was like, well, that's all you need me for. Yeah. Um, and then in part it was like, well, but I want more than that. Yeah. I want more of it for him. And then, you know, get lost in overthinking, thinking these things. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was the, 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 the tension and, and the struggle that, uh, lasted for, for a good while. Yeah. And I know there was, there was kind of last ditch efforts to stay the execution order and to transition it into, you know, a life sentence. Um, So there was maybe that tension sort of leading up to the end. Yeah. It's, I became like, listen, I (laughs) bound boundaries were loose. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, and, and once I actually physically moved to Oklahoma in October, like I was in the team Phil, right? So close with the attorneys, um, politicians in Oklahoma, other abolitionist groups. um, Like I was in it and and a lot of our our phone calls um, with with Phil, my phone calls with Phil was about his case. Yeah. Or that's what he wanted to talk about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um which also was hard. So, but I was like in it 
and yeah. learned a lot about the capital punishment yeah. that I didn't know before. My my views on capital punishment changed significantly during this experience, as one would imagine. And um, it became the the thing um, that 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 dominated my daily life, yeah. and and still to to large degree is. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on that a little bit because, as the listeners probably heard at the top of the show, unfortunately, in for Phil's case, uh, the execution order was um, carried through. So there you were in that very, I understand, a very shortened last visit with him prior to his execution because of series of things. Your time together was less. But one of the things that you that was written about you in that beautiful New York Times article, which will be linked in the show notes for this episode today, folks, um, was this offering that you offered him, which just really kind of broke me open because I think it really comes down to the core of, again, as I said, I think everything that we need most as human beings, which you just kept saying, you are loved and you are not alone. You are loved. You are not alone, which, um, you know, I said, basically those words as I laid in the bed with my husband as he died. And I think all of us would want that for ourselves when we think about our end time is to know that we are loved and we are not alone. What gave you the, I don't know what, like how did that come to be those particular phrases and what was that experience like to, to be alongside somebody in that most extraordinarily I don't even know what the word. There's just not enough words today. Horrible, horrific I, way to I go. I use I use surreal because yeah. it's yeah. it's really just yeah. It's really just hard to imagine. Yeah. So, but why the you are loved, you are not alone in particular? Well, because you, because he was when I w was struggling and and I asked him like, how can I help you, Phil? Yeah, yeah. He he would say. Philippians um, 4, verses 7 and 8. And, and I've read it, and I've sent it to my dad, and he's examined it from a very, a very Christian point of view. And it doesn't really translate to how Phil said it translated to. But again, didn't matter. matter. That was Phil's understanding of yeah. it, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he would say, he said, show me something real, show me something true. Yeah. And I would kind of use that as is the approach, and I had reached out a few months earlier to Sister Helen Prejean, who um, from Dead Man Walking, yeah, yeah, and wanted to get some guidance from her, and she just sent me an email back that was a one-line email yeah. that just said, just let him know his uniqueness. Let him know that you've enjoyed your experience with him and that he is a human valuable of life. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I don't know why, at the time I was like, this is it? 
This is all. <laughs> this, this is, is all your you. big wisdom that you're offering. This is all you're yeah. giving me. Come on, you're the, there's, you made a movie for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sorry, sister. That was amazing. <laughs> and and so I waited until the morning of the execution, in part because hoping that hoping would be, that it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hoping I didn't have to write something to say something. And so I used some of his words back. And so I, I just wanted him to let him know that, that that was what is real and what is true. Yeah. Is that he is loved and he had a lifetime of being shown the opposite. Yeah. Particularly his last week what they called death watch. Um, and the, you know, I, I just, I, I know for most of his life, he had also felt alone and, yeah. um, just wanted him to, to feel my presence by proxy. Yeah. Um, all the, all the, the realness of, of that he was loved. And, and, you know, I said in, in my opening prayer that although this is his journey to go on, that, that he is not alone in that he should not feel alone while he goes on it. And, um, so when they, uh, you know, they, it's I mean, if it's helpful, I'll, I'll yeah. kind of explain yeah. The, yeah. The, the process. Um, starting with, as you had mentioned, it was late. It was scheduled for 10 a.m. The governor has the opportunity to grant clemency up until the time of the execution. The last time he granted clemency, the, the man was also strapped to the execution gurney. So the, the, it was even uh, an important context to that is 21 days prior to that, there's a clemency board. The board recommended clemency. Right. For so there was some real tangible hope yes. there yeah. that this was mm -hmm. a possibility. Yes. And yeah. that's without even getting into the details of the case. Right. Right. Uh, which is a whole nother story. Um, and so we kind of, we as the team kind of know the closer we get to the scheduled execution time, the less likely there'll be yeah. clemency, but you never know, right? Yeah. And so Death Watch started on the 23rd, which also was Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, so on, on Death Watch, they, they move him from, from his cell, which has, he's made his home. He's got his own mattress, his own setup. So he's lived there for, years they move him to a an, another cell they keep the lights on 24 7 um death watch used to be called suicide watch right um it's now death watch um he's isolated it was on thanksgiving so he missed his his holiday visit which he should have gotten anyway so he missed the visit then everybody essentially went on vacation for four days mm. and then it was like the monday then when now he's got three days. Or now he's got three, yeah. yeah, three days, which is um, really, it's such a, 
a dehumanizing process. Um, so anyway, there was thought that the governor could grant clemency during the Thanksgiving holiday, particularly that Friday, because there were football games and stuff, because they, they thought it would wanted to get it under the radar. Yeah. So there was a, so within the team, there was like, oh, this might be the time. This might be the time. And then Friday goes by, there's no word. Saturday, Sunday goes by, Monday goes by, there's, there's no word. And so by Wednesday, you know, all we're doing is looking at the news feeds and in our phones. Um, I, ha I had my last visit with him on Wednesday. It was a four hour visit. Um, nothing all through, uh, through that night. And then I need to be at an annex building with the president at eight o'clock. I am secluded with uh, his witnesses. Um, and the, the way the process is supposed to work is that the head chaplain of the Department of Corrections then just comes, gets me, escorts me through um, H unit, which is the location uh, where he, the death row is, and it's also where the execution chamber is. And then I get escorted and get anywhere from 45 to 30 minutes okay. with Phil. So I'm sitting in there, it's eight o'clock, nine o'clock happens, nothing, nine thirty happens, ten o'clock happens, nothing. So we're all we know that there is a delay of, of some type, but we don't have any information. Yeah. Um then like then it's about ten thirty. One of the attorneys then sees on Twitter that uh the governor has released that the execution will go forward as planned. Mm -hmm. Um so we're getting the news on social media. And then there was still a little bit of time. It was close to 11 o'clock before the head chaplain came and got me. And at this point, it is like, hurry up, right? So now we're going like a million miles an hour. And so I get in his car. We're like speeding through the back. Um, people are pulling over. We're, we're passing, um, getting into to the security checkpoint. When I got into security, the media had just gone through security. So the media pool had gotten uh, in there before I did. And so um, go through security. And it's also, it's also interesting, surreal too, is because I had, you know, probably close to 18 visits. And so uh, on, you know, yeah. before then, and so you become familiar with the corrections officers that are patting you down every Friday. Right. And so it becomes yeah. quite friendly. And I remember I knew the 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 corrections officer's guard's name that was patting me down um and i said good morning and and said his name and then he, he didn't respond and it was really like the first real i mean there were many real moments but uh, the gravity yeah of, of this what day, was of what of, was about to happen yeah yeah and for i i will say and for these corrections officers um, and we can get into that in, in a second if you want to. And so then I get escorted into through some hallways that I had never been through before. Then the chaplain, um, we go through these, these gates. Now we're in like a, like a gate cubby. Um, he stays another guard, uh, escorts me up these stairs. And now there's like tons of, of, of professional police more than just corrections officers. And even when we we're pulling up, there were blacked out SUVs. It felt like um, 
the president was visiting because there was just so just, much like professional police and black SUVs and people with earpieces in. And, and so I get escorted up, um, uh, up, up the stairs because the execution chamber is on, on the second floor, go through this curtained off area. Again, multiple corrections officers or state police or federal police. And then I sort of face the, face the, the door and a corrections officer that is now is masked um, says, do you, do you need to, to be briefed of what to do in there? And I had been briefed the week prior in, in significant detail. And I said, please brief again. And so he tells me the procedures and I could see in his eyes that he was also very nervous. Yeah. And I could hear it in his voice. And so there was, with the, with the interaction with the corrections officer at the front of H unit that patted me down and with him, it helped me to be grounded and that this is an entire human experience. Yeah. Um, yes, it is Phil, Phil's experience, yeah. but there are um, other people that are going to be suffering as a result of this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I try to take care of that, um, be mindful of that. And so they, so he then lets me into the, into the room and, and mind you, so now this mass corrections officer is mainly there just to guard me, to make sure that I don't do anything to disrupt uh, the process in any way. So I walk in, Phil is strapped to the gurney, had been all morning. So the delay uh, of the morning, whatever it may have been, I still don't know why the delay was. Um, he had been strapped in that whole time. Yeah. Um, an, another uh, of a multitude of just inhumanity. Yeah. yeah. And so preventable. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a weird thing to say for an execution, but yeah. um, there were opportunities to. Yeah. Um, just to display a, a simple moments of humanity that were totally missed. And so I, I, as soon as I walked into the room, I grounded it with, with uh, a prayer that I had written that's actually in, the, in my notebook that's printed in the, in the Times article. And even though you know, it wasn't religious per se, I, I mean, I did ask Phil if, if I could do it before I did it, and he was like, yeah. Um, I, I, I do believe, honestly believe that it, that it helped the moment it helped me it's, it helped Phil and it helped the, the two other people in the room. Yeah. And then I, I kind of took sister Prejean's advice and I just told Phil the things about him that was, um, that I liked and admired and. Um, he is the type of person that when he's uncomfortable, he'll just try to make you laugh. Yeah. Joke. Yeah. yeah. He, he's a, he's a joker. And so we had moments of that where it was me and the, the head of the operations, the department of corrections and, and Phil were kind of cutting it up a little bit. Um, and then, and then I referenced the, the Philippians and I said, you know, what was, you, you you asked me this, and the answer is is that what is what is real is that 
you are love and I'm, a, I'm here as a proxy of that love. I love you and, and your mom loves you and um, your brother loves you and, and many people that don't even know you love you. And so you feel that. And then, yeah, what is true is that you are not alone. And then it was probably not more than seven minutes of, yeah. of my time. Again, typically I would have almost 45 to 30 I get escorted to the escorted to the or sort of push back is only like three feet to the far wall. On this side of the wall is is the viewing glass, and so they raise the curtains. And in this in the seats behind the glass is the Phil's witnesses and the the media pool. Behind them is a two way mirror that we can't see from the execution chamber, but they can see us. Is the the victims of the of the fa- or the families of the victims? Yeah. Um. And then, you know, it is very procedural. There is no pause in that procedure. And so as soon as the curtain went up, Phil, a microphone was hanging down uh, from the ceiling over Phil. He was given two minutes for his last words. Um, and then they turned the microphone off. And and it was let the execution begin. And then he was he was lying there and he was talking. Um he was talking about the case. And and I could tell he was beginning to mumble, yeah. which I knew it happened quicker than I thought it would. It was yeah. quite quick. Um and I don't know if it was like selfishly or, or whatever. I didn't want his last conscious thoughts to be litigating the case. Right. Yeah. And so that's when I interrupted him talking and said, Phil, you are loved and you are not alone. And then as soon as I said that first line, he stopped talking. Mm. And, uh, then I just continued throughout the process, knowing that hearing is the last sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just said, you are loved and you are not alone throughout the, the remaining 10 minutes before they, you know, they pronounced him dead. Yeah. I want to take a minute here for you, for Phil, for his family for the family of his victims. And just for all of us who have been by someone's side in possibly less extraordinary and surreal circumstances, right? Um, this just a theme that keeps coming back to me when I heard your story, um, which is the lesson from what you offered him is just the most important lesson I think we can all carry with us when we are showing up for somebody, not just at their death, but in their hard times, right? Is you are loved and you are not alone. I just think we try to come up with all these complicated ways of being and ritual. And yes, they they serve a purpose, but this gift that you gave him at the end, um, even if he couldn't reciprocate that you are loved and you're not alone, is just um, a profound gift, you know, that I think I wish for all of us that we have you know, when our time comes is for that reassurance. 
So it's been a few months now since you had that experience, since you were alongside Phil when he was executed. What do you know to be true now? What do you know to be real? What What is this going to, um, where is this leading you, if you have a sense? What's next? I don't know what's next. I, you know, and, and I guess to tie it back to the end, we'll talk about something real, something true. I, I've learned that those are very, the answers to that question are provisional. Yeah. And it the changes. In this moment. In this right? moment. In this moment. <laughs> um. Part of my Indwell talk, I, I I was discussing wrestling or being befriending uncertainty, yeah. um, and that is hard. And that is where I am right now. Is I I, I don't know. Um, I'm feeling the the draw to do creative stuff again immediately thereafter, and and this is probably quite normal, is that I yearned for normalcy. Yeah. I remember, so the execution was on the 30th. Um, they, Phil and his mom had asked me to, to take care of, you know, the remains and disposition and, and handling that. And then it was back to New York and it was holiday party season. A part of me was like, I need to show up at holiday parties. Yeah. Um, but also, how can I show up at holiday yes, parties? That's, having I mean, gone that's, through, having gone through this. this that's thing. it. Like it's like, what have you been up to, Sal? Well, I've been, yeah, you know, shopping. What have you been up to? And, and I actually, you know, I yearned for like, yeah. who's your favorite football team? Like, I don't want to just tell me the nonsensical nothingness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, but what was what was challenging about that that you just indicated is that um i didn't want to talk about it yeah but there was nothing else i could talk about and so it was this this area of um yeah you know and and and, and to you know Everybody knew it, and so they wanted to be there for me, and I yeah. love them, and I appreciate all of that. Um, and and some people probably need that. Um, I was still in the mode of like, just tell me about you. What are you doing for Christmas? What are you doing for the holidays? Yeah, to sort of be regrounded and rerooted in the world of the living and of the world still spinning. Yeah. And it's it still is. I don't even yeah. know. It's still yeah. surreal. Like I am currently my location. I'm living at a friend's house because my my house in Brooklyn is still. I, I'm renting it to somebody else. Um, yeah. They're out of here next week, so I'm you know I I still feel untethered. I don't know what's yeah what's grounded right now. Yeah. Well, you get to carry that deep curiosity that you have with yeah. you. Yeah. Which is, you know, I think is of service. And I can imagine for all of us, you know, when we're in those spaces of ambiguity or uncertainty, 
or the untetheredness that we can all relate to when we are particularly in deep grief or, you know, crossing some threshold in life that is so profound is we will always still be able to find ways to tether ourselves, even if it's the conversation of tell me about you and your holiday, right? Just mm-hmm. how how do we just keep tethering ourselves to the world in these little in these little ways, in these little moments? They don't have to be the permanencies that help give us that sense of groundedness, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said at the top of the show, like and there doesn't even have to be an answer. Yeah. It can be a question left unanswered. Yeah. Well, part of, yes, absolutely. Part of the gift of continuing to revisit the question is you sort of live into your answers um, in ways that also remind you that it's all with the addendum in this moment. Because as we started at the top of the show, that's all we got. We've got this moment, right? And we just don't know how many moments we will have. But I appreciate you spending these moments um, with us today for helping us learn more about you, the journey that you've walked on, maybe opening some of our minds for for folks, some new folks to this notion of being a humanist chaplain, maybe opening some minds to the experience and the uh, rules and laws and morality, perhaps, around our uh, capital punishment policies and laws in this country. And I know personally, I will, and I'm sure my listeners will stay tuned to what it is that unfolds for you in your coming chapter. Thanks so much, Devin, for for joining us on the pod today. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. So good to see you. Good to see you. I don't know about you, but this conversation with Devin reignited my passion for so many things, including appreciating what a gift life is, And the reminder that one of the most profound things we can offer someone facing a hard thing is the reminder that they are loved and they are not alone. So I say to you, my dear listeners, you are loved and you are not alone. You can learn more about Devin's podcast, Memento Mori, and his work by visiting dsmoss.com or following him on Instagram at ds underscore moss. Now, don't forget, you can pre-order my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss on your favorite online bookseller today. When you do, don't forget to message me so that I can send you that party invite link. Oh, and this season, I'm committed to releasing the unedited version of these episodes on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefoffer MSW. Thanks for listening. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to share it on socials and tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for providing the music. Until next time, my dear listeners, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.